Good evening, everyone. I want to thank you for joining us for tonight's uh, Connected Conversation, which is a program of the Idaho Humanities Council. Now, those of you who may not be familiar with our work, I encourage you to visit our website, which is idahohumanities.org for more information. Uh, my name is David Pettyjohn. I am the Executive Director of the Idaho Humanities Council. And tonight I'm filling in for our usual host, Doug Exton. Now joining us this evening is Rick Just. Uh, Rick worked for the Idaho Department of Parks and Recreation for 29 years. He and I had a delightful conversation beforehand. He is a native Idahoan, loves history as much as I do, so I'm greatly looking forward to his, his talk tonight. And among his other duties while he was at the Idaho Department of Parks and Recreation, he was the agency historian. Um, he has written two books on Idaho State Parks and several more on other Idaho subjects. He writes a daily history blog called Speaking of Idaho, which has about 9,000 followers. And he also founded the nonprofit organization Friends of Idaho State Parks in 2013, and he currently serves as the organization's president. Now, Rick is here tonight to speak on the history of Idaho State Parks, something very near and dear to us Idahoans. So, Rick, Welcome, and thank you so much for joining us this evening, and I will turn it over to you. Very good. Thank you, David. Uh, you will all be relieved that you don't have to look at me during this entire presentation. It's mostly going to be pictures uh, from uh, historical pictures of Idaho State Parks. I'm going to share the screen right now, and that will take me to find out where we are. There we go. And we'll make it larger. And then we'll begin. At least that's the whoops. That's the uh, the plan. There, that works. One of the most common questions that I get is how many state parks in Idaho. It just seems like an easy one to answer, doesn't it? Right now, the answer is thirty with an asterisk. We've always had a hard time defining the term state park. For decades, one meaning was something like land owned by the state of Idaho that invited citizens to use it. And that included rest areas and roadside stops that happened to have a picnic table. As a result, state parks were managed at various times by the Idaho Department of Transportation, Public Works, and the Idaho Department of Defense. It wasn't until 1965 that a dedicated state parks agency was formed. And we'll be talking about that later. In today's program, we're going to be, uh, well, one way, one way to approach this, I guess, could have been just chronological, but for a lot of reasons, that doesn't work out very well because the, the parks predates the state parks themselves in a way. We're going to be talking about Hayburn, which is Idaho's first state park. Uh, then we'll, we'll move down a little bit, up a little bit, I should say, in, in the state to Farragut Naval Training Station. Then we'll visit the Railroad Ranch, Old Mission State Park, uh, the movie on Priest Lake, and then we'll talk about the politics of creating a state park system, and then we'll have a brief look uh, at today's state parks and when they each began. Our first state park owes its existence to this man, U. Weldon B. Hayburn. He was a staunch opponent of federal lands and was an early foil of the newly formed Forest Service. Still, he wanted one national park in Idaho to be created from 
Coeur d'Alene tribal land that was being disposed of without enthusiasm in tribe. He once famously said that state parks were always an embarrassment. So he fought to make the area near St. Mary's a national park, and he lost. Congress instead authorized the sale of the site to the state of Idaho. The state of Idaho cut enough timber in the park to pay the asking price, then honored the man who thought this were always an embarrassment by naming it after Senator Hayburn. What you see in this picture is the famous River Between Lakes. It's uh, the St. Joe River. Historically, it ran alongside Round, Chat and Benoit Lakes, except in the spring when so much water would come down out of the hills that it, it kind of drowned the river. Then about the time Hayburn became a state park, the local power company put a hydroelectric dam uh, in the Spokane River at Post Falls. That backed up the water to the traditional high water level at the time, creating a permanent drowned river where the city's just a little strip of bank on either side as it winds through uh, what is essentially one large lake now, Lake Coeur d'Alene. Those banks erode a little more each year, so they'll probably go away completely at some point. Picnickers from Spokane used to take a train to Coeur d'Alene, then catch a paddle wheel steamboat to Hayburn State Park. This shot shows the swinging railroad bridge in action, boat through into the park. This is that same bridge today, and it operates a little differently. Um, it doesn't swing anymore, for one thing. Engineers raised it high enough to let sailboats beneath it when Trail of the was built in about 2004. That's the trail that goes up over the, over the uh, bridge and into Hayburn State Park. The 72-mile trail goes from Plummer to Mile, the old railroad bed. It's paved all the way, including this section that goes across the lake and the old uh, swinging bridge in Hayburn State Park. So Hayburn State Park is indisputably Idaho's first state park, and it was named so in 1808. And this is a set of rules and regulations from that time when the park was managed by the Department of Public Works. We won't go into those today because they're boring, but they haven't changed an awful lot since that time. Sure, the prices have gone up, but we still want you to be quiet after 10 o'clock and things like that. All right, so uh, this is just a, a picture to tossed in that shows some of the activities that were going on at Hayburn at that time. A rock log roll test. Note the, the steamboats in the background, the people on the, the piers. It was great fun, I'm sure. It wasn't until the 1930s that the park really came into its own. The Civilian Conservation CCC started in 1930 as one of President Franklin Delano Roosevelt's New Deal programs. It was designed to put young people to work during the Great Depression. In Idaho, there were at least 52 CCC camps. 30 camps were in national forests, six were in state forests, five worked on soil conservation districts, three were on reclamation projects. There were a couple of uh, grazing districts, and one was located in Hayburn State Park. A lot of states took advantage of the seasonator to build some great state parks. Idaho just did the one, probably because legislators were worried about future maintenance costs, as they still are today. 
The young men on the Civilian Conservation Corps came mostly from local communities such as St. Mary's, at least in this area. They got clothing and room and board and $30 a month, $25 of which had to be sent home to their families. They got skills training as well and everything free to road building. The CCC members were from 18 to 25 years old. They had to be unmarried and they were unemployed. In 1935, the age range was extended to 28. Some were military veterans. Each would sign up for a minimum of six months and could extend for up to two years. They typically worked a 40 hour week and usually five days a week. Here they're working on the fireplace for a kitchen and a picnic shelter. And that looks pretty much the same way as it did uh, today as it did back then. This picture was taken probably in the 1930s and that picnic shelter is still there. Um, it just kind of noticed today, but the, the CCCs built some of the buildings at the, at the park. They also built roadways and trails and a water system. They hauled sand in for beaches. And this is what the kitchen on the early photo uh, looked like. The stone masonry of the CCC buildings is a hallmark of their construction. There was time for some fun at the CCC camp at Hayburn State Park. The camp band played for a Saturday night dance now and then. Doing important work and learning new things guys a sense of self-worth. Self uh, decades later, most of the CCC men looked back on their experience with great pride. Now, this doesn't look like much, and, and it kind of isn't, but reunion years ago, park staff learned that the crude structure in this tree was left over from the CCC days. It's all covered with moss now, and you can hardly see it. It was a fire lookout. Unlike more formal lookouts in forests today, this one was just a platform where someone could take a regular look around for smoke after climbing up the tree. The Civilian Conservation Corps dissolved in 1942 when World War II created another role for the country's young man. And that role brought a young man to Idaho. This is an aerial of Farragut Naval Training Station. The attack on Pearl Harbor taught the Navy something about vulnerability. Officials decided it would be wise to place naval training stations inland. They already had lakes. Idaho's biggest lake seemed like it would be a good site too. Building an all new naval training station was a tremendous effort. It had to be done because the war was suddenly on. This photograph shows construction at Camp Waldron Barracks in 1942. Construction at Farragut Naval Training Station began in March and recruits training in September of the same year. The final construction budget was $57 million. Recruits who were called boots would train there for only 26 months. Even so, uh, 293,380 men received their basic at Farragut. New recruits would arrive in civilian clothing and soon find themselves in a barber chair. The regulation cut was a maximum of three inches on top. After their trim, the boots got inoculations 
some dental exams and were fitted for uniforms all within 90 minutes. They would receive $133 worth of personal belongings, which included a mattress, a hammock, and a blanket. Their next stop would be their assigned barracks, which would be the home for the, the boots for from six to 13 weeks, on whether or not they attended one of the special schools on the base. Each of the training camps had a drill field called grinders, where the recruits marched. The huge regimental drill hall in the on this photo, um, allowed training during all kinds of weather. They were said to be the largest clear span, that is, without posts, buildings in the world at the time. These were big. This particular structure is believed to be uh, the drill hall at Camp Banyan. And they went on to have their own histories. There's still one today in Spokane that was moved over there. It was a cost for a while. And there was one moved down to uh, Denver, where the University of Colorado uh, used it as a field hockey arena for a number of years. This is why the station had to be located on the shores of the Big Lake. Recruits were training for naval duty. They had to be able to swim 75 yards, and each spent hours in all weather conditions in 16-man steel whaleboats on Lake Pondray. During rifle 100 men could fire their rifles at a time, at any given time, on the FNTS range. The men soon learned to hold their 30-06 rifles tight against their shoulders to avoid the jolting recoil. During the peak of training, 12,000 rounds of ammunition were fired every day. Both the lead and the brass were salvaged and recycled into new ammunition. The rifle ranges still exist and can be rented for practice and special events. Well, I may have, may have skipped a slide there. Let's go on to this one. The, the weekly Farragut news was the essential form of communication for the boots on station. The newspaper first came out December 12, 1942. The final edition rolled off the presses in June of uh, 1946. Lots of postcards went out from Farragut. This is the, uh, the uh, camp, uh, <laughs> my apologies, this is the ship's store. They often stocked merchandise uh, such as papers and envelopes and pencils and postage. And for those who were anxious to hear from the, them at home, the sailors could purchase jewelry, stuffed animals, and other souvenir-related items. One popular gift item for women was what they called the sweetheart pillow up here in the upper left. It, it was covered in sateen and bordered in fringe, gold fringe. There were versions for mothers as well as sweethearts. And the Navy boots could also record messages uh, for the folks at home and send them on back with uh, you know, 45, what it looks to be a 45 RPM record, actually been a 33 RPM record. Uh, lots of postcards went out from Farragut, many of them featuring an Idaho theme. Some of these were uh, produced and by the Idaho Department of Agriculture and given to the um, as a promotional item. Sandpoint, Idaho photographer Ross Hall provided class photographs that the boots could buy. The photographs included a list of those pictured, and the picture above is Company B, 11th Battalion, 3rd Regiment. 
It's not a particularly special one, it's just an example. Hundreds of company photos are on file today at Farragut State Park to help those wanting to know more about family members through training at Farragut Naval Training Station. It was quite a production, really, uh, keeping things rolling and ordering those pictures. This shot shows Ross Hall girls who kept track of names of those in the pictures. Uh, they're shown in their booths with a class lined up for a photo the background. Ross Hall himself, the photographer for the Navy, probably took this picture too uh, to give you an idea of the scale of this operation. In March of 1944, a record 20,891 boots had their pictures taken. Ross Hall's a own photographer in Idaho. He did a lot of postcards in his day and a lot of historians are familiar with him. So this is a military formation at Farragut Naval Training Station. These are not naval recruits though. Can you guess who these people are? Well, it won't keep you in suspense. This will give you a clue. Their camp newsletter was in German. More than 200 German POWs arrived at the station in February 1945. The prisoners were guarded by army troops while there. As many as 926 POWs spent time at Feria clearing brush and shoveling coal mostly, but also as bakers and cooks and storekeepers and firefighters. Long after the war, a former prisoner would occasionally show up at Farragut State Park for a visit. They generally had pretty good memories. Farragut served as a technical college for a couple of years, then was mothballed. Its days as a state park way far into the future. Now we're going to step back in time for a few minutes. Back to 1908 again. That was, as you'll remember, the year that our first state park was developed. Our next story is about a famous ranch in Eastern Idaho that would play a critical role in creating the Idaho Department of Parks and Recreation. Officially, the ranch was the Island Park Land and Cattle Company, but everyone knew it as the Railroad Ranch. So you remember that Idaho's first state park was in 1908, but something else happened that same year that would be even more important in creating a state park system in Idaho. E.H. Harriman, the man in the middle of this photo, uh, bought into a ranch in eastern Idaho. Harriman was a railroad who ran Union Pacific Railroad. Locals called the operation the Railroad Ranch because some other railroad men associated with the Oregon Short Line owned shares in it. The Oregon Short Line, so named because it was the shortest way to get freight from Wyoming, was a subsidiary of Union Pacific. So E.H. Harriman bought the place, bought a share of it at least, but he would never see it. He died in 1909. His sons, Avery Roland on the right, would be the Harrimans who most enjoyed the ranch. They made many trips there with their mother as boys and young men. One thing you need to understand about the railroad ranch is that there was never a railroad there. This train was E.H. Harriman's special train in New York, which original Arden Carr, his personal conveyance. When Roland Harriman took over the helm of UP in 1946, he had a second Arden Carr built for his use. The car's name came from the Harriman family home place in New York. And I probably at this moment that there's also a Harriman State Park in New York 
which is why Harriman State Park is called Harriman State Park of Idaho. A lot of Hereford cattle were raised on the railroad. In this shot from around 1960, Gladys Harriman is on her white horse Geronimo and E. Rowland is on his horse Buck. They were taking the herd a short distance to the Island Park siding to be shipped to market. Although Averill Harriman spent some time at the ranch, it was Roland and his wife Gladys who spent the most time there. They often brought their daughters and their friends along on summer trips to the railroad ranch. In this picture from about 1938, Elizabeth Betty Harriman is on her horse Chalice, helping move cattle at the Island Park siding. Her uh, sister Phyllis is on the fence. Raising cattle around 6,200 feet above sea level calls for harvesting a lot of grass hay. In this picture, sickle bar horse-drawn mowers knock down the grass. The Harrimans brought in early steam brought in an early steam tractor for use in the hay harvest. I found out it didn't work very well because of the configuration of the fields and the irrigation ditches that had to be. Uh, cut into them. So they largely st stuck with the uh, horse-drawn equipment throughout the uh, history of the ranch and its cattle operation. In this shot, several teams pick up uh, hay with sweep rakes. The horses are harnessed behind the pickup teeth. In the center is a beaver slide, probably being moved from a finished stack to a new stack in the field. There were several variations of the slide, like this one used at the Royal Road Ranch. The purpose of each was to use horsepower and later tractor power to slide a load of into the air and push it off into a stack or onto a stack. The railroad ranch supplied beef to the army during World War II. And after the war, they stopped keeping cattle year round. So they also stopped harvesting and stacking hay. Cattle not the only livestock raised on the railroad ranch. In the above picture with one of the big barns in the background, uh, elk get their winter feed. A bull Rocky Mountain elk can weigh 700 pounds and stand five feet tall at the shoulder. For a time, they were commercially raised and shipped to markets in the east and sometimes for the Harriman's table in New York. The ranch also tried racing bison commercially but found they were very difficult to keep contained. Look at that extra high fence. That's because a bison will just hop over a regular fence like nothing. Bison were once native to what is called the Island Park area of Eastern Idaho, north of Idaho Falls. The railroad ranch is in Island Park. The turn is inside the ancient cone of a collapsed volcano called a caldera. And it's confusing, but Island Park is not a park, it's a place. <laughs> Roland Harriman was a banker the CEO of Union Pacific and the chair of the National Red Cross. In this picture, he and his wife Gladys look all duded up. Ranch staff called most of the wealthy and famous visitors to the ranch dudes. No one seemed to mind. Don't get the wrong idea though. Both these people knew how to work cattle. Gladys held a world record in harness racing at one time. Now, this is not going to be good footage but we're going to give it a try. This is a special little film. The Harrimans frequently visited the ranch, having pilots land their planes in the pasture. Roland Harriman and Ford commissioned the first five of these amphibious aircraft. 
each powered by twin 450 horsepower engines mounted on the leading edge of the wings. The landing gear was hand cranked into position for field landing. Harriman turned his grunts over to the uh, Royal Canadian Air Force for the war effort in World War II. And for a while, I wondered why that was. Here he was an American uh, uh, railroad magnate, and he had this airplane. So why give it to the, the Canadians? And the answer was his, uh, his brother, uh, Averill Harriman, was the ambassador to London, uh, to England, and lived at the time. The U.S. wasn't in the war yet, but of course the Canadians were. So we gave the plane to those, the folks up there, and uh, the drum and goose served them well. Then it became a part of uh, Central BC Airways, but in 1952 crashed and sank during bad weather in British Columbia with five fatalities. So many famous folks visited the railroad ranch over the years. We have some pictures of some of them, starting with John Muir. This picture wasn't taken at the ranch, though it looks like it could be. Muir was friends with E.H. Harriman. Uh, this is kind of surprising for a lot of people. He was a, Harriman was a supporter of Muir in the Hetch Hetchy debate uh, in Yosemite and involved building a dam in the area of Yosemite National Park. They lost that when the dam was built. Also along with Harriman on the famous 1899 Alaska expedition sponsored by E.H. Harriman, and then he visited the ranch in 1913. Some of his diary entries and sketches are featured on interpretive signs in the park today. We're interested in, in history and, well, you, you probably are if you're watching this program. I highly recommend the series that uh, uh, PBS did a few years ago on the Alaska expedition of 1899. It was an incredible undertaking. You probably haven't heard of some of the famous visitors to the ranch because famous fleeting. This is Mariner S. Eccles. He was a well-known economist who served as chairman of the Federal Reserve under President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. He was a proponent of New Deal programs and was actually pretty involved in creating them. The Federal Reserve in Washington, D.C. is named after Eccles. He was one of the original investors in the Island Park Land and Cattle Company. He wasn't there. Now here on the left is Baroness Hilla von Riebe, posing with a ranch horse. She was a noted artist in the early 20th century and co-founder and first director of the Solomon R. Guggenheim Museum in New York City. On the right is Guggenheim. He and his brothers, Daniel and Morris, purchased three cabin lots at the railroad ranch in 1906. The brothers sold out to the Harrimans, but Solomon retained his ranch share and properties in 1949. And the Guggenheim's wealth came from copper mining. Charlie Jones and his wife, Jenny, built a guest house on the property uh, formerly owned by Solomon Guggenheim in 1955. Jones ran Richfield Oil Company. Uh, the Harrimans purchased Jones' share in 1961, and after Charlie died in 1970, Jenny Jones donated the furnishings of the house to the state of Idaho, and they are still in the Jones House, which is now used for various functions at the park. This was 
in the history of the railroad ranch. On the left is Steve Bly, who was IDPR director in 1974 when the picture was taken. He became a world-class photographer, by the way. The fish belongs to Elliot Richardson. He was the U.S. Attorney General during the Nixon and Ford administration. Famously resigned rather than fire Special Prosecutor Archibald Cox on Nixon's order during the Watergate scandal. All right, this is Avril Harriman on the left. The ranch in 1937. He served as uh, U.S. Secretary of Commerce under President Truman. Later, as governor of New York, he twice ran for president as a Democrat in 1952 and 1956 by Adlai Stevenson both times. He served as ambassador to the United Kingdom and to the Soviet Union. And of course, he's remembered in Idaho as the developer of Sun Valley Ski Resort when he headed Union Pacific. Both brothers had been headed Union Pacific at different times, as did their father. In the picture on the right, is then Idaho Department of Parks Director Yvonne Farrell with Pamela Harriman. Pamela's wearing the hat. So she was the third wife of Averill, and boy, was she in, <laughs> intertwined with history. I'm always a, she was acquainted with many of the most famous figures of the 20th century, from Adolf Hitler, whom she met as a teenager, to Winston Churchill who was her father-in-law during her first marriage. President Bill Clinton appointed her ambassador to France in 1990. Uh, this, uh, this picture of Yvonne and Pamela happens to be one I took. Pamela brought Richard Helms with her on that visit. I don't know why I didn't get a picture of him, maybe as the former CIA director. He just didn't show up in photos. I... If you spent fourth grade in Idaho, you learn something about the Catalva mission of the Sacred Heart, Idaho's standing building. Construction started in 1850, and the mission was finished in 1853. The 8-4 photograph on the left was taken more than 30 years after its completion. Even this early in the history, the building is showing some wear, particularly on the entrance steps where several members of the Coeur d'Alene tribe were standing. The picture on the right shows the building in the mid-1920s. I want you to notice a couple of them. In the second photo, you can see the parish house on the left that was built after the first photo was taken. Also note the urns on the facade of the building. There are four in the earlier picture and only two in the one on the right. Those were replaced in later reconstruction. Also, it looks to me like it might be the same guy standing on the steps waving in both pictures, but, you know, I can't prove that. All right, here's another bad film, but we show it for a good reason. In 1926, the word documentary was brand new. So was a movie camera owned by one of the mines in the Silver Valley. They used it to shoot this short film on the 75th anniversary of the building, the building of the Catalda Mission. The mission was in terrible shape at the time. Yeah, this is what makes the film so special. The guy on crutches? That's Father Cataldo, the man the mission was named after. He did not build the mission, I want to make that clear, but it was named in his honor some years after it was built. Cataldo was one of the founders of the city of Spokane and started Gonzaga University. It was Father Anthony Ravelli, 
an Italian-born priest who designed and directed the building of the mission. The priests and some of the tribal members had only simple tool, tools, such as a whipsaw, auger, ropes and pulleys, oh, and a pen knife. Uh, the flooring for the mission, the steps, and the iconic columns marking its entrance were cut from local pines. Tall wooden pillars um, and columns are held together by wooden pegs, no used in the original construction. A stone foundation holds up 30-foot-high walls made of, yeah, you won't expect this, mud, grass, and willow things interlaced in what's called wattle and daub construction. The building was clad with clabbered in 1865, hiding the inner walls, but park visitors can still see exposed sections on the interior, complete with fingerprints of those who worked on them. Father Ravale showed his skill on the finer interior appointments as well. He and others carved three altars, decorating each with the paint uh, to resemble marble. They fashioned chandeliers from tin cans. Ravale patiently carved statues of the Blessed Virgin Mary and St. John the Evangelist from blocks of white pine with a penknife. That's Fred Walters up on the left. He's an expert in historical architecture from the Idaho Heritage Trust. He's worked with the Coeur d'Alene's old Mission State Park staff several times in the past to advise on various restorations. Most of the columns that grace the front of the mission are original, though one was partially replaced in 2006. In 2016, the National Park Eby's Landing uh, restoration crew did work on the column bases. Now here's something that's more recent and yet pretty old at the same time. The watercolor of the mission on the left was done in 1854 by John Mix Stanley. It was turned into a lithograph um, published in the Pacific Railroad Report, Volume 12. Uh, the reports commissioned by the Secretary of War were detailed examinations seeking the most practicable and economical route for a railroad stretching from the Mississippi River to the Pacific. And you may notice some similarities to the picture on the right. You can see an awful lot in that. But in 2013, Assistant U.S. Capitol Curator Amy Burton discovered that the original watercolor on the left was the inspiration for one of the paintings done by Constantino Baramudi for the Senate wing of the U.S. Capitol. In the Baramudi on the right, the mission becomes a nondescript building on a hill. Now, what makes this special is that there is good evidence this painting is the only one of the frescoes in the U.S. Capitol that depicts a building, kind of, <laughs> that is still standing. So finding what was essentially the lost images from a, one of my parts was kind of a big deal, but it wasn't the first time something like that happened. This is a photo of Tom Trusky, who was a professor at BSU and happened to be a good friend of mine. Tom loved to find little treasures that were lost to history. He discovered there, were, there was once a movie studio on the shores of Priest Lake run by a woman named Nell Shipman. Now others had known this, but he really made things happen with it. Little was known about it, and the films she produced had all been lost 
Tom decided to find them. He had no idea how difficult that would be. He searched archives in Canada, the United Kingdom, and Russia, and began finding them one after another until he found every one of her films. On top of that, he found her unpublished autobiography and convinced BSU to publish it under the title, The Silent Screen and My Talking Heart. Tom Trusky wrote the following about Nell in 2008. In the summer of 1922, Nell Shipman Productions moved from Spokane, Washington to its final residence, Priest Lake in the middle of North Idaho. There, the company would complete the shooting of what historians and silent film fans termed Shipman's Opus, The Grubstake, 1922, and four noteworthy two-reel films in a series titled The Little Dramas of the Big Places. Although Shipman and her crew could not have known it, this was sundown for the Democratic Indy, one girl do it all days of cinema. Dawn of the next day, the studio system and male movie moguls would define for decades what Hollywood meant. Prior to the advent of Gloria Steinem, Sundance, satellite feeds, and online downloads. Nell Shipman was the screenwriter director, star, and stunt woman in her movies. They featured strong women more likely to save men from danger than the town. Her pioneering included what today, by today's standards, would be a PG-rated nude scene of her showering beneath a waterfall. <laughs> they didn't miss a bit, though. The movie was hyped with the slogan, Is the nude rude? Shipman Point in Priest Lake State Park is named for this very pioneer. Shipman was a pioneer in treating animals humanely in her movies. This is loaded with her menagerie on Priest Lake around 1922, headed for Lionhead Lodge, her film studio at the north end of the lake. If you look closely, you might be able to see Brownie Bear in a silhouette in the cage on the front of the barge. Brownie appeared in several of her movies, often with Shipman's son, Barry, who went on to be a screenwriter of some note himself. Because of the scholarship of Professor Trusky, who passed away in 2009, Boise State University is the home to a digital collection of Shipman's photographs and other memorabilia. Many of her films are available online. Revival of interest in Shipman resulted in an award-winning 2015 documentary called Girl from God's Country by Boise filmmaker Karen Day. You can't get away from politics, can you? Up to now, you've been getting some background about some of our more interesting park sites. Now, now we're going to spend a few minutes talking about the politics of creating a state parks system. Idaho has been lucky to have some generous philanthropists in state parks. Virgil McCroskey's was the first and uh, un undoubtedly the most persistent. Virgil's parents homesteaded near Steptoe Butte, about eight miles from Fax, Washington. He was a pharmacist by trade and a conservationist at heart. This is Steptoe Butte, where McCroskey played. He purchased the Butte and turned it over to the state of Washington in 1945. His gift became Steptoe Butte State Park. He had some plans for Idaho, too. In 1939, he started purchasing land along the ridgetops north of Moscow. 
in the patchwork fields of the rolling Palouse Prairie with the idea of preserving that as an Idaho State Park. This picture of Steptoe Butte was taken from one of those ridge tops in Idaho. To McCroskey's surprise, he met resistance from the Idaho legislature when he tried to give them the property required. When Virgil McCroskey approached the Idaho legislature in 1951 about accepting his gift of land, legislators worried about upkeep and about taking 2,000 acres off the property tax rolls. He purchased more property to add to the gift, and by 1954, he had 4,400 acres to offer, and a new governor, Robert E. Smiley, as a supporter. Still, the legislators were concerned about maintenance, so McCroskey, 79 years old, agreed to maintain it him for the next 15 years. The lawmakers finally agreed, and McCroskey kept his word. He took care of the site until uh, just before his death at age 94 in 1970. In a sense, he still takes care of the today. McCroskey left $45,000 in trust to the state to be used for maintenance of Mary Minerva McCroskey State Park. The 1955 dedication of the park picture was taken. Virgil McCroskey is holding Elaine McCroskey with Craig Sartwell standing next to him. They were great-grandchildren of Mary Minerva McCroskey, for whom the park is named. McCroskey himself never married. McCroskey wasn't the only one who was persistent in state parks in Idaho. Robert E. Smiley ran for governor of Idaho in 1954, at least part of a system of state parks for the enjoyment by citizens and to encourage economic development through tourism. He talked often during his campaign of reorganizing Idaho's natural resource agencies and, and putting an emphasis on attracting tourists. In 1959, Smiley called for the creation of a Department of Natural Resources, consolidating existing agencies and containing a new division of state parks. The Idaho legislature ignored his suggestion. Smiley trimmed down the proposal for a natural resources agency for the next legislative session, seen instead for only a state parks agency. The bill narrowly passed the House, but died in Senate and a committee. Then an opportunity came along that Smiley was quick to recognize. The governor had known E. Roland Harris for some time, when in 1959, the co-owner of the railroad ranch called. Harriman and his brother Averill wanted to see the land they owned protected from development by donating it to the state of Idaho. Now, Governor Smiley saw this as his chance to create a state system. Working mostly with Roland Harriman, the majority owner, Smiley insisted that language in the gift deed um, that Idaho would be required to have a professionally trained park service in place before the property would transfer to the state. Even with the donation of the railroad branch as a tempting carrot, the 1963 legislature refused Smiley his state parks department one more time. So when the going gets tough, who are you going to call? No, not President Eisenhower. That's just a gratuitous photo to show you the boys, Steve and Bill. 
Nope, you're going to call for another photo of the boys with their mom Lucille and their dad at the family cabin on Lake Cascade. In Idaho, when you're trying to build a park system, you're the Girl Scouts. The state had recently traded land that was about to end up under Dwarshack Reservoir for that old Navy base we talked about earlier on the shores of Lake Ponderay. Governor Smiley wanted Farragut to anchor his state parks north with the old railroad ranch anchoring the southeastern Idaho. He thought Farragut would be the perfect place to hold the 1965 National Girl Scouts Senior Roundup. The Scouts thought so too. It would uh, bring a lot of money in North Idaho. So with that commitment from the Girl Scouts in hand, the legislature finally, the Parks Department, the advance team for the Girl Scout Roundup consisted of 1,700 adults. They're assembling picnic tables in this photo. For the staff and volunteers, their trip to the wilderness started at New York City's Army-Navy stores, where according to public relations assistant Mimi Wetzig, they bought shiny black boots and khaki-colored raincoat bags and ponchos. And when they arrived at Farragut, they found tents had already been set up. But little else, each got an orange crate to use as a dressing table and a galvanized pail for water. And we're not on Park Avenue anymore. That's Margaret Price, national president of the Girl Scouts of America with some scouts at the 1965 Roundup. Mrs. Price and Governor Smiley cut a ribbon at the intersection of streets named for the occasion, Price Road and Smiley Boulevard to open the event. Smiley Boulevard is still a name of the main road that goes through today. During the opening ceremonies, the governor shouted over the noise. If you want a comparison in numbers, there are as many people here on this lot right now as live in Caldwell. The program opened with 11,000 voices singing Girl Scout songs, recordings of which still occasionally sell on eBay. If you're interested. And you're probably not. <laughs> the Girl Scout Roundup was a big success, but Smiley wasn't done. Just two days after the Girl Scout concluded, Governor Smiley sent out a press release announcing that Farragut had been selected as the site for the World Boy Scout Jamboree. Smiley said, Idaho is bigger today. The biggest planned event in Idaho's history for a hope it's an assured occurrence. What was not assured, as it turned out, was that Smiley would be the governor when the Boy Scouts came to Idaho. It was in 1965 that the Idaho legislature gave, uh, gave Governor Smiley his parks department. That's not all they did. The 1965 legislature is one of the most famous in Idaho history. They created the parks department, but remember, there was a significant string attached to the gift of the Harrimans uh, gave to the state. The gift deed said the land wouldn't transfer until a professional agency was in place. Smiley and others worked that year to make all state agencies more professional, creating the state personnel service. And Percy, the state retirement system. That was a lot to accomplish in one session. But none of those accomplishments was even a big deal that year. The big deal. Oh, they created the, the, the uh, community college system, too. 
the big deal that was here was that they they passed the state sales tax. Thanks. Now, majority of legislators voted for the sales tax, and Smiley also supported it, signing the bill. Not everyone was happy about that extra three cents on a dollar they had to pay when they bought shoes or bread. There was a lot of grumbling. A lot of people started referring to the sales tax as Smiley money. Smiley was a popular governor who had already been elected three times. He wasn't concerned much about winning his fourth election. Folks were even talking about having him run as vice president. And this guy came along, the man in the middle, thought he could be beaten. So Don Samuelson, a first-term senator Smiley had once endorsed, decided to run against him in the primary. Smiley didn't take him seriously and didn't understand the resentment many had about the sales tax. Samuelson beat him in the primary. Smiley was the owner of the sales tax who lost his office, but lose it he did. So it was Governor Don Samuelson in his photo helping some Boy Scouts get souvenir items ready for the World Scout Jamboree finally had landed for the state of Idaho. And before I tell you, because I don't think I do in the, the, the printed notes to this piece, Samuelson was actually one of those Navy boots that went to Farragut uh, when it was the Naval Training Station. So that's what originally brought him to Idaho. One of the first things they did when the scouts arrived in Idaho was a record game. Each was given a letter and they were charged with finding scouts from other places with the remaining letters that would make up the word friendship. Goal was to get scouts of several nations together and it apparently worked. The skill-o-rama at the jam was where scouts could watch dancing, listen to music, and taste the foods of other lands. They could also practice their own skills at everything from scuba diving to gold panning. With a little limbo thrown in, a contingent of seven scouts and two leaders from Haiti was the first to check in, arriving on July 28, 1967. Scouts from Thailand, the Netherlands, Germany, and Guatemala were behind. In all, 108 nations were represented at the World Boy Scout Jamboree. And to date, the gathering at Farragut was the only World Scout Jamboree ever held in the United States. They're planning one in the next couple of years back east. Astronaut Scott Carpenter was at the Jamboree with the original Aurora 7 capsule from the Mercury Space Program, in which he orbited the Earth in 1962. Carpenter also served as a swimming, archery, and hiking coach for several days during the event. Celebrity sightings were common at the World Scout Jamboree. Vice President Hubert Humphrey was there. So was Jimmy Stewart, shown here. It was not Stewart's first trip to Idaho by any means. He was a flight instructor and squadron commander in the 29th Armament Group at Yowen Field in Boise during World War II. 1967 was the Diamond Jubilee year for scouting, celebrating the first outing of uh, founder Sir Robert Baden Howe. Powell died in 1941, but his widow, uh, Alea Baden Howe, Powell, I don't know why I can't say that tonight, Powell, was the chief guide of the World Girl Scouts, and she was an honored guest. She called the, uh, the gathering the Nations in Action. The most significant development at uh, Farragut uh, that came along as a result of the World's uh, 
Chamboree was probably this amphitheater uh, and the 500 person swimming area at uh, Beaver Bay. This amphitheater has uh, room for 60,000 people. It's not maintained anymore, uh, but uh, it's, it's still there. All over the world, we're greeted by a smoke belching insect called a gooberif, courtesy of the Idaho Department of Lands. For years, it had been stenciling, don't be a gooberif on highways all over the state. It was meant to make people ask the question, what is a gooberif? It was actually firebug spelled backwards. The theory was that it would stick in the mind better than don't start, start fires. And I think that's, uh, that's probably true. Two years after the World Jamboree, the scouts were back at, at Farragut, this time for a national jamboree. This map shows the layout of the event and that followed where the original camp, uh, uh, oval camp areas were for the Naval Training Station. South of their Frank Church attended the final ceremonies. Astronaut Colonel Frank Borman delivered a message from President Nixon on the closing night of the jamboree and presented the film from Neil Armstrong's first step on the moon which had occurred a few days before. Only a handful of scouts had seen the televised event. The entire crowd sat spellbound, watching the scene from the moon and hearing Armstrong's words. Both Borman and Armstrong were former scouts. Armstrong acknowledged the scouts from space on his way to the moon, saying, hello to my fellow scouts and scholars at Farragut National Park. And no one attended to tell Commander Armstrong who was actually State Park. At this point in the program, I go pretty fast and give you a brief overview, a uh, brief tour of the parks and historic pictures telling you when each park became a state park. And then I'll uh, answer some questions when we're done. Um, in some cases, I'll also note when they stopped being a state park, because that's hard, uh, certainly part of the history as well. Hayburn, of course, was the first in 1908. Joshone Falls was the second park named in 1909. Then in 1933, it was turned over to the city falls. They still operate Joshone Falls. And this you'll recognize as Lava Hot Springs. It uh, was a state property even earlier than Hayburn State Park, but it became a state park in 1913 and lasted until about 1967. It's now its own uh, as its own board of directors and institution. In 1935, the state acquired a little piece of property along the Boise River up near where Lucky Peak Dam is today. They didn't bother naming it anything until about 1955. They just called it State Park. The little point of the left is Discovery State Park nowadays, a unit of Lucky Peak State Park. Now notice the house on the right in this picture from the 1880s or 1890s where Arthur and Mary Hallockfoot lived. Arthur was the engineer who designed the canal system in the Treasure Valley. Mary was a well-known illustrator and author at the time. A fictionalized and somewhat controversial book about their lives was written by Wallace Stegner. Angle of Repose won the Pulitzer Prize in 1972. The house in the picture is long gone, but I a little group that uh, put together an interpretive site up there that we're pretty proud of. I invite you to cross the dam and take a right and see what's up there. It's, it's certainly This is Packer John's cabin. It came along in 1936. It was the site of the first Democratic Convention in Idaho. It's tiny. 
that before you make jokes about Idaho Democrats needing only a their convention, it was also the site of the first state Republican convention. Why? Uh, because it was halfway, basically, between Lewis and Boise, and so that's where they held them. The small park was turned over uh, to Adams County for management in 1982. The cabin in this picture was a reproduction of the original, and even the reproduction has since burned down, uh, that uh, courtesy of vandals. Spalding State Park was the site of the Spalding Mission, one of the earliest missions in the North. It remained a park for 30 years until the National Park Service took it over in 1966. They included this and uh, many other sites in three states as part of the Nez Perce National Historic Trail. Park headquarters is here, not far distant. Canoe Camp was also managed by the state of Idaho until 1966 when the National Park Service took over. It's part of the National Historic Trail. This uh, is along the Clearwater River near Orofino. It's where Lewis and Clark stopped to build canoes for that final leg of their trip. They did not have that get them across. The Warden site is near Caldwell. The state managed it for a number of years, but it's only about an acre, so it really doesn't warrant state park management, probably. And that was the opinion, at least, at least in the 1960s. Uh, it was judged too small, and they eventually turned it over to Canyon County, and they do a very nice job with that little park. The construction of Lucky Peak Dam in the 1950s created Lucky Peak Reservoir. The Idaho Department of Parks and Recreation managed recreation sites all around the reservoir, including Roby Creek and Chimney Rock, Barclay Bay, Gulch, and Morris Creek, all those in the 1960s. Many of them were turned back uh, to the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers to manage in the 70s, and they still are. Sandy Point, Spring Shores, and Discovery are all units of what uh, is now Lucky Peak State Park. The 1935 winter photograph on the left shows the family home that came with the property around Tiny Round Lake. The house was served as a park visitor center. Round Lake is a 143-acre park near Sagal, Idaho. That's just south of Sandpoint. As I said earlier, McCroskey State Park came into the system in 1955. Not a whole lot has changed there. We've got some uh, picnic shelters up there and ball tie toilets. Uh, a lot of people still call it Skyline Drive because that's its main reason for, for existing, is the, the beautiful blues. For as popular a park as Ponderosa State Park is, there are very few historic pictures. This 1969 shot is of a park manager, the park manager Jerry Hover, showing off a, a new sign map that illustrated where the, the trails and the campgrounds were on the peninsula near McCall. Uh, Hover was employed by the Idaho Department of Parks and Recreation for several years, but retired as the director of Kansas Department of Wildlife and Park. Before Ponderosa became a park, the Idaho Department of Lands leased some of it to private interests who built a community of rental structures, such as those in the picture on the left, and they called it Lakeview Village. Most of Ponderosa State sits on the peninsula that juts out into Payette Lake, where nearly a thousand acres offer visitors camping and biking and boating and nature trails. The, the park headquarters is a, uh, roughly on this site, pictured here. At the north end of the lake, another 500 acres um, is in North Beach, the North Beach unit. They reckon swimmers and paddlers. This is where they shot much of the 19th 
film Northwest Passage, starring Spencer Tracy. Robert Young and Walter Brannon have filmed up there, and they all wore green uniforms. And I learned just recently they did that because that's the way it was written in the book originally, that they all wore green leather uniforms. It just looked wrong. Priest Lake, where Nell Shipman shot her movies, became a state park in 1959. It was originally called Indian Creek State Park, but the name was changed when other properties were acquired. Indian Creek Unit is where the most modern campground is today, as our park headquarters. This is a family in the mid-1960s on top of the big dune of State Park. It's a 480-acre park that offers camping, hiking, fishing, and horseback riding. One can also slide down the dunes on a rental board or stay after dark to watch the stars in the Astronomical Observatory. Winchester Lake came along in 1968. The park actually belongs to the Idaho Department of Fish and Game, but is managed by the Idaho Department of Parks and Recreation through an agreement. It features a secluded campground, several rental yurts, hiking trails, a lot of fishing piers, and nearby is the Wolf Education and Research Center, operated by the Nez Perce Tribe. It's a major attraction. Don't miss it if you, if you uh, decide to camp up there at some point. Three Island Crossing was where uh, Oregon Trail pioneers had to decide whether to cross the Snake River for better grass or stay on the south side of the river for a little bit shorter, but dry, not a lot of feed. About half chose to cross, and they chose to cross here. The park today has a modern campground and the Oregon Trail Interpretive Center on the outskirts of Glens Ferry. Three former governors and then Governor Dirk were at the dedication of the Interpretive Center in 2001. The former governors are left to right, John Evans, C. Sandris, and who also served as Secretary of Interior and Phil Bath. And I don't know why I didn't get Governor Kempthorne in with them because that would have been an even better photo of governors. Massacre Rock State Park. Sometimes called the Gate of Death or Devil's Gate was a point along the Oregon Trail where travelers passed between lava outcrops. The photograph on the left shows the old highway going through in the 1940s. On the right, I-86 follows the Oregon Trail through the substantially widened gap today. The formation got its name because of fears of ambush. It was actually about Two miles west of the rocks where a wagon train was ambushed, travelers in five wagons clashed with Shoshone Indians from August 9th to August 12, 1862, resulting in 10 deaths. Colonel Patrick Connor and his troops retaliated for this and other skirmishes in January of 1863 by attacking a Shoshone winter camp along the Bear River, killing as many as 400 men, women, and children. That event is known today as the Bear River Massacre, and I'm pleased to say that the National Park Service is doing a lot of work down there that will uh, help keep that in our, in our minds. This is the old motel that served travelers in the 20s, 30s, and 40s at Massacre Rocks. This is an early picture of Register Rock. It's protected under a shelter today. This is one of two Register Rocks in Idaho. On this one, Oregon Trail pioneers carved their names. On the Register Rock and City of Rocks National Reserve, they used axle grease to leave their names, probably because the rock was harder. Massacre Rock State Park is right on the Snake River, and it's one of my favorites. It uh, surprises people when they 
learn that uh, 200 species of birds have been sighted at the park. It's a, it's a flyway. Bear Lake State Park is in the extreme southeast corner of Idaho. About half of the lake is in Idaho, half in Utah. The Better Beach is at the north end of the lake in Idaho. So many swimmers and boaters from Idaho and Utah spend summer days there. Uh, they spend summer days there so often that they often have to close the, the entrance to the park two or three times a day and let people leave so they have a place to park. IDPR acquired 3,000 acres south of Pocatello from the U.S. Bureau of Land Management in 1968 through the Recreation and Public Purposes Act for $2.50 an acre. It really wasn't a bargain. The Indian Rock State Park Visitor Center was located on the west side of I-15 at the exit to Springs. Park planners hoped that campers would stop on their way to Yellowstone National Park. They also hoped a planned reservoir nearby would attract boaters and fishermen. The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers there was not enough public support for building a reservoir on nearby Marsh Creek, and the park closed in 1983 during the state budget crisis, and it never reopened. In 1970, IDP just land on both sides of Malad Gorge to create Malad Gorge State Park near the town of Bliss. In this picture, park manager Rick Cummins poses on the canyon rim. The I-84 bridge is in the background and the waterfall wash bowl is below that. A footbridge was later installed across the gorge so that visitors could access both sides of the canyon. In later years, Malad Gorge would become a park unit of Thousand Springs State Park, which also includes Niagara Springs, Crystal Springs, Billingsley Creek, Fox uh, Canyon, and Ritter Island units. And I see that I need to update that because Billingsley Creek is no longer a part of that park. All right. We're getting in here. This picture is from 1972 showing a picnic shelter at Hellsgate State Park on the outskirts of Lewiston. The park was developed by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers and uh, turned over for management by the Idaho Department of Parks and Recreation that year. The Corps builds substantial facilities. Hellsgate State Park, they took care of that little irrigation problem they had with sprinkler guns mounted about 12 feet high, each with a two and a half inch nozzle. They worked well until the trees grew up. I think they still have one or two of these in the park, but uh, they were something. You didn't want to get in front of one of those when it was time to water the grass. Maori State Park, south of Coeur d'Alene, is one you've likely never heard of. It was donated to the agency in 92. There are two pieces of property, actually, each on a little peninsula. Between the two is a property with a beautiful bench, beach, excuse me, a beautiful beach that uh, the agency was hoping to acquire, but they never did. The park in this picture is accessible only by boat, and it's managed by Kootenai County. The remaining property is too high above the lake and too small to be of much use on its own. There's a house on the property that's used for staff housing, but uh, we don't have visitors coming there. Henry's Lake. Whoop. Henry's Lake State Park is Idaho's only seasonal park. Heavy snows at the 6,070-foot elevation winter access impractical. Note that park names such as Henry's Lake do not contain a possessive apostrophe. 
That's in compliance with naming conventions of the U.S. Board on Geographic Names. So if you're an English teacher, you're mad about that, but it's, it's the rule. <laughs> Veterans Memorial State Park was created in 82 on the site of the Old Soldier's Home on State Street in Boise. And I get past that here. Mallory, my apologies, Henry's Lake, Coeur Lane, that's what we missed. Uh, Old Mission became a state park as part of the U.S. Bicentennial Celebration. Yes, it uh, actually opened a year earlier, but trust me, it, uh, it was a centennial park, a bicentennial park uh, project. Nowadays, the Interpretive Center has a beautiful exhibit called Sacred Encounters that tells the story of Native American interaction with the missionary movement of the West. There's veterans. I had those switched, probably because they should be switched. Veterans Memorial State Park was created in 1982 on the site of the Old Soldier's Home on State Street in Boise. The park memorializes war veterans hosts numerous related ceremonies and serves as a quiet park along the Boise River in Greenbelt. Um, Idaho Department of Parks and Recreation turned operations over to the city of Boise in 1997 through a long-term lease, but it still remains a state park. You remember that the donation of the railroad ranch helped create the park system in 1965. It wasn't until 1982 that the park actually opened to the public. Governor Smiley, who was so involved with that, was there for the opening ceremonies. This is an aerial feature even a few of our employees don't know about. It's a landform sculpture of an eagle at Eagle Island State Park. You can just make it out there, a flying right there on that little peninsula. Uh, they decided to do that when they developed in 1982, and then they really didn't do much with it after that uh, to highlight it uh, so that you could see it from the air. The park was the site of the old state prison honor farm near the city of Eagle. It features swimming beaches, water slide, and hiking trails. And uh, future plans include a new campground in the area. When Timothy H. O'Sullivan took this in 1868 for the U.S. geological exploration of the 40th parallel, he listed this as Sphinx Rock. California Trail pioneers and just about everyone else since refers to this formation as the Twin Sisters from this angle. It's, it's named other things from other angles. It's part of the City of Rocks National Reserve, which has been jointly managed by the Idaho Department of Parks and Recreation and the National Park Service since 1988. Uh, so it's technically not a state park, though most of the employees there wear a state park uniform. Dorshak State Park uh, near Orofino is one of the many that are owned by a federal agency but managed by the Idaho Department of Parks and Recreation. U.S. Army Corps of Engineers owns the property and constructed most of the facilities. This is then park manager Mike McElhatton and Governor Cecil DeAndres with the dedication plaque for the park in 1989. Landry State Park was selected as Idaho's Centennial Park in 1990 the ribbon cutting for the Chalice Interpretive Center was in 1992. The park includes the ghost towns of Custer, Bonanza, and Bay Horse, as well as extensive backcountry ATV trail system. 
The Ashton to Tetonia Trail follows an abandoned railway line in eastern Idaho. Unlike northern Idaho's trail, of course, this 29.6 mile trail is not paved. Bikers and hikers here will find a gravel pathway. The trail, which is open to snowmobiling in the winter, crosses several trestles, including the 300 foot high Bitch Creek Trestle shown here. This is a little known park located near the summit of Lolo Pass. Glade Creek is where Lewis first camped in what would become Idaho. IDPR has built a little interpretive overlook, but other than that, the site has maintained much as it was when Lewis and Clark first. Lake Walcott is on the reservoir near Rupert. It has kind of a formal city park feel to it, though there's a small campground and some cabins. Boating and fishing are what draw people to uh, Lake Walcott. And certainly uh, it's a popular for uh, disc golf tournaments. It's hosted the uh, state championships several times. Lake Cascade is one of the closest camping parks to Boise. It's all about the water here. The camping and boating sites scattered around the lake are actually owned by the Bureau of Reclamation and operated by the Idaho Department of Parks and Recreation as a state park. Just a few minutes away from the National Reserve is Castle Rock State Park, just on the Idaho side of the border with Utah. The sites share the same headquarters building at in uh, Almo. Castle Rocks became a state park in 2003. Both of the parks are, are world-class rock climbing sites. This is one of those accidental parks. Uh, Coeur d'Alene Parkway was part of the east-west highway across the state until the development of the interstate made this section of road right outside of Coeur d'Alene obsolete. It's not a paved pathway now offering beautiful paths, uh, beautiful views of the lake along the bike path, and in the winter there's a terrific spot to watch eagles. And this trail Got a lot of press when it first opened because it's something else. The Trail of the Coeur d'Alene's, jointly operated by the Idaho Department of Parks and Recreation and the Coeur d'Alene Tribe, is a 72-mile paved pathway that follows the route of the old railroad. That railroad once hauled ore for the mines in the Silver Valley. Then ore fell off the train cars, making the railroad bed hazardous with heavy metals. The best way to protect the public from that hazard was to cap it capped the old railroad with an asphalt trail that created one of the most protected bike routes in the United States. So that's the most recent park created in Idaho. That was back in 2004. And the question is, will be, there be more parks in the future? Well, I, I think so. Idaho has no shortage of sites worthy of designation. Our elected officials have been reluctant to add additional parks because of the cost of maintaining them. And that's certainly one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is, well, coins, actually. Our state parks bring in over $200 million to the state's economy every year, according to uh, estimates uh, from a state university economic impact study done a couple of years ago. Governor Robert E. Smiley saw the economic power of state parks when he fought so hard to create the Idaho Department of Parks and Recreation. I hope future leaders will share his vision that's Bob Smiley at the dedication of the headquarters building out on Warm Springs to the Idaho Shakespeare Festival. A few years later after his death, it would become the Robert E. Smiley Building in recognition of his role as the father of Idaho State Parks. 
and I'm about to talk to myself horse. <laughs> uh, I'm going to bring it back to live and in person here and take some questions. Well, Rick, unfortunately, we have gone over time. Uh, it was fast. Oh, I'm sorry. No, no, it was absolutely fascinating. Um, you kind of, the, the, some of the questions that we had received, you had absolutely addressed. Uh, I want to thank you for sharing that wonderful history of our Idaho State Parks. Uh, the list of it, as I was mentioning to you earlier, uh, uh, as a recently new Idahoan, uh, it gave me a lot of wonderful information. And I've got a lot of state parks to, to visit. So thank you so much. Well, I, I would invite anybody to ask a question. Rick Just at rickjust.com. Awesome. Rick, thank you for your time tonight. Thank you all thank so you, much David. for joining us. Have a wonderful evening. All righty.